The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 340. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also go to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you enroll. You can purchase one of my courses there, which you get something out of it. You also keep this podcast free of charge, and those courses are awesome. I have a new course out, Southern Cultural Intellectual History, Part 1. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, August 11th, it is the last day to get a deal on it. So you want to be on my email list to get that. So make sure you're on the email list. If you're a McClanahan Academy subscriber, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. You also get the best coupons. It's a great way to do it. Also click on that shop tab on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the shop tab. You get my Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of stuff. The Think Locally, Act Locally logo. All kinds of great stuff there. Of course, you can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. You can subscribe to Liberty Classroom through that. Of course, I teach there too. Lots of great ways to support the show. Of course, rate it wherever you get your podcast. Share it around on social media. Do everything you can to help grow the audience organically because that's how we're going to get more people thinking locally and acting locally. And always send me your podcast requests or ideas. I do read them. Even if I don't respond, I do look at them and read them. So please do that as well. All right. Uh, let's talk about the topic of the day, which is an article that appeared. Uh, I don't have the date on this. Uh, but it's from uh, fivebooks.com, and it is the best books on the Civil War. Now, I get this question a lot. What should I be reading on the war? Give me the best books on the war. And uh, so I figured I would, I would answer this question in, a, in an episode, a Brian McClanahan Show episode. And I'm going to give you five. Now, this, this particular, and, and I'm going to go back and forth on this. This particular essay is an interview with Drew Gilpin Faust. Now, if you're not familiar with Drew Gilpin Faust, she's... Uh, she was the president uh, of Harvard University. And uh, she was able to get that position because of her work that she had done over time as a professor of history. And she wrote several very popular books on the South. Uh, her most famous is probably The Mothers of Invention, but she wrote a book not long ago entitled uh, The Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War. It's the most recent book. And uh, she's also she wrote a book on uh, James Henry Hammond, who uh, was, of course, a lightning rod for those who are critical of the South because of his positions on slavery 
and not just that, his very immoral life. I mean, James Henry Hammond was a pretty despicable guy in his moral life, in his private life, I should say. I mean, he did some horrible things. Uh, but regardless, um, she wrote a book also entitled the, the Creation of Confederate Nationalism. And this particular book is interesting because essentially she believes and she argues that Southern nationalism didn't exist without slavery. There would have been no cohesive South without slavery. That, that theme saturates her entire work. Now, in my Southern Cultural and Intellectual History course, I outline quite succinctly that that's simply not true. There would have been a South without slavery. In fact, slavery didn't create the South. You could say that a component of Southern culture helped create slavery, both white and black at the beginning, then, of course, exclusively black slavery in America. But uh, there was a South. There was a cultural South, a distinctive cultural South that was cognizant of that even before the institution of slavery became a political issue in the antebellum period. We have to understand slavery as a political issue. Now, not everyone, of course, would, uh, would agree with that. Even in the antebellum period, there were those in the North that looked at it as a moral issue, abolishing slavery. There were those in the South that looked at it as a moral issue, even abolishing slavery, but also, of course, a moral issue of maintaining slavery, North and South. I'm going to talk about a book that gets into that and why I think you should read it. So that wasn't really a distinctive issue South against North. It was certainly, by the 1850s, one that had become important politically. Why? Because of the extension of slavery. As the debates over the original 13th Amendment highlight, which Daniel Crofts has pointed out is really the Lincoln Amendment. It's called the, the, uh, the Corwin Amendment, but it's really the Lincoln Amendment because he had his fingerprints all over it. When this amendment was proposed, which would have kept slavery permanent in the South, Southerners who were still in the Union at the time said, well, that's a stupid amendment. It doesn't mean anything because the Constitution already protects that in the South. The real issue was slavery in the territories. And why was it an issue? Well, there were some in the South that considered it a moral issue, the backbone of Southern society. I mean, there's, this is without question particularly some of the theologians and some of the more outspoken large plantation owners. But for the most part, the extension of slavery meant that you could maintain the Southern agrarian political economic system, which meant no tariffs or low tariffs, no federally funded internal improvements, light taxes, low spending, these were things that the South had advocated for since the Constitution was going through the ratification process. You go back and read what George Mason said about his opposition to the Constitution, and one of them was, of course, navigation laws. He was concerned about the, the South being taxed out of existence. And this strain, I mean, you go back and look at, this is why I talk about this in the course, part two is coming up within about a week. You go back and you look at the Southern Cultural and Intellectual History course. You go back and you look at what Southerners said. They focused on these things a lot in the antebellum period. When you get to the 1850s, we're talking about slavery extension because it meant power. 
who was going to have the control of the United States Senate, most importantly. For many Southerners, they already thought the House was a lost cause. It wasn't, they were never going to control the South. However, when you look at, a, at the Democrat Party, and of course it was still a national party, the Republican Party was not, the Democrat Party still controlled the House of Representatives. So if you look at the Democrat Party as a coalition of conservative Northerners and then Southerners, they still would have controlled the government. This is why some Southerners thought secession was folly, because it was an overreaction, which is what one of the books that I get into talks about and why I recommend you read it. It was an overreaction on both sides. And if you read someone like Thornwell, James Henley Thornwell, who was very pro-slavery. I mean, he is, he is a th- Southern theologian who believed in, uh, in the uh, moral superiority of slavery biblically. This was his argument. But he does say something interesting. He says, look, I mean, a lot of times the reaction from the South was simply just to kick the hornet's nest of the North, to goad these people on, almost like trolling, like we would say trolling today. Much of what happens on social media is simply just to egg on the other side, to get them all frothing at the mouth and riled up so they show that they're a bunch of nincompoops. Well, Thornwell points out in one of his pieces that this is exactly what was happening with, say, for example, Southerners talking about reopening the international slave trade. They weren't serious about it, but they were doing it because they wanted to expose the abolitionists. So there was something going on there, this this hotly contested issue that both sides became radicalized, essentially. The North and the South became radicalized, and that did not allow for real political discussion to take place. And this is another book that I'm talking about, essentially outlines that position as well. So if I was to pick five books or six books on the war or books that you should read, I'm going to go over those, but I'm going to counter it with what Faust is saying. She picked some really stupid ones, to be honest with you. Books that, of course, I would say are absolute garbage. And one of them is, um, and I've already reviewed one of them, David Blight's Race and Reunion. So I'm not going to get into that. I've done it. I actually did a show on that book. Uh, but she does select that book. It's really not about the war. It's about uh, the post-war period and Reconstruction. And there are better books on Reconstruction than David Blight's Race and Reunion. In fact... The whole idea that we have memory studies is just a stupid thing. It's stupid because that's what all of history is. It's how we remember things. History is the remembered past, as John Lukács pointed out. It's the remembered past. So how we remember the past is how the past took place. Uh, in one of my classes, I have uh, on my U.S. history course, I have a survey course, I have a, a, a section on the meaning of history. And one of these students, very astute, where I call history an art, which it is. He says, well, if it's an art, and when we're talking about art, obviously this student has an art background. You don't necessarily criticize the other side and their conception of art and what that is and what that means. You can be critical of what they consider, whether it's good or not. And this is essentially what, what the student is saying. And so... Uh, when, if history is an art, well, you have interpretation in that. There are always at least two sides to a story, if not more. 
And what we have done in history is decide which side we like better. Now, a historian will show both sides. And of course, biases come through. And I have my own biases. But what, what Blight does, and there's actually a very good chapter in Blight's book. I mean, the chapter that he has on uh, extensively on the African-American experience after the war is, is good. I mean, it's, it's a good chapter. Some of it, though, is just absolute garbage. And again, I've, I've reviewed it. So if you want to find that, you can go out and look for my review on David Blight's Racer and Union. But then she has the funniest one to me is... Stephanie McCurry's Confederate Reckoning. Now, I know I've talked about Stephanie McCurry on this podcast, but what she says about it is absolutely ridiculous. And this is where I'm going to counter it with a book that already did this. Stephanie McCurry's Confederate Reckoning, Power and Politics in the Civil War South. Fowl says, this is such an original book. It offers a fresh perspective on the Confederacy by looking beyond the elected representatives and other traditional foci of political history. Stephanie points out that there were of 12 million individuals in the Confederate States, and only 2 million of them were consulted about secession through elections or representation. Another 10 million Southerners, including women and enslaved people, were not consulted. Well, that's such a stupid argument, though. This is such a stupid argument. Why is it a stupid argument? Because they weren't consulted in the North, either. Women didn't vote in the North. This is why you had Elizabeth Cady Stanton ticked. After the 15th Amendment was passed, she said, look, we supported this war. We can't vote. Why is it men can vote and we still can't vote? So women weren't consulted in the North. You had five states in New England where blacks could vote in 1860. <laughs> uh, but they couldn't do it before that. You had universal suffrage North and South. And it's just ridiculously stupid. You're setting up a straw man, a false dichotomy, that the North was somehow this land of beautiful democracy and the South was this oligarchy. This is what the neoconservatives tend to do too, and it's absolutely stupid. She continues, in a war on the horizon, the South is overmatched. It's resources and population. So we need to mobilize this entire population. Women and enslaved people who had never before been afforded any participatory role in society, had leverage because their labor and loyalty were essential to the Confederate cause. Stephanie points out that white women, defining themselves as soldiers' wives, asserted claims on the state, the right to be consulted, and provided help in feeding their families. Similarly, the enslaved population was able to assert more power over their lives because their labor was necessary, more necessary than ever. So the Confederate South compromised some of the assumptions about female dependence and black suppression, which had been defining principles before the war. Uh... If you read, this is, okay, first book I recommend, E. Merton Coulter's The Confederate States of America. Now, E. Merton Coulter is going to be one that, oh my gosh, how can you recommend Merton Coulter? He was a racist. Well, he was. He was that, but he didn't mean he didn't write a good book about the Confederacy. I mean, this is, it's, it's, that's a logical fallacy. If you took Logic 101, that would be one of the logic, it's an attack on the person, and it doesn't work, right? So, his book on the Confederacy actually includes all of this stuff. It's, Confederate Reckoning is not an original book. E. Merton Coulter did it in the Confederate States of America. He talks about the role of women, the role of the slave population, the role of all of this. 
He even talks about women's rights, which supposedly nobody talked about before. But he did. And he wrote this book long before Steffi McCurry. In fact, I'm sure that she's looked at it. I don't know if she's read it extensively because of, well, that guy's a racist. I can't read that. Yet, we're supposed to read all these other morons who I don't agree with politically. I'm supposed to read Stephanie McCurry, who is a far leftist. I'm supposed to read that and think, oh, that's fine. I'm supposed to read Eric Foner, who's a communist. I'm supposed to read all that, but, I mean, that's okay. But I can't read this guy because, well, I mean, we don't like what he says about things. Where, I mean, where's the hypocrisy? <laughs> We're all there. It's all right there. I'll never forget, probably my, one of my favorite professors in graduate school and doing a, our seminar, reading seminar on, on Reconstruction, he was very critical of Eric Foner. This guy is not, I'm not going to name who he was, but he's very critical of Eric Foner because since Foner came around, you can't, you can't say you should read Dunning, the Dunning work, because, well, that guy is a racist, so you can't read that. So what you had was this narrowing of what were acceptable books. This is what Tom Woods calls the three-by-five three index card of acceptable opinion. It's not just political. This, is, this saturates the history profession. You can't read this. You can't read this. If you praise this, well, they're going to call you all kinds of names. If you say there's something valuable in this book, well, you can't do that. You can't do that anymore. The next book I would recommend is Michael Holt's The Political Crisis of the 1850s. And I recommend this particular book because he gets into, look, I mean, he says slavery is an important issue. It was. Why was it an important issue, though? Because of the breakdown of, of a national party system in the 1850s. When you had a national party system, you could absorb these problems and you could come to political solutions of this expression of power. But once those parties begin to break down, and it took place because of the extension of slavery, right? It's not the moral issue. It was the extension of slavery and how that was going to work. You see, once the North realized if, if, if they can't block the extension of slavery, then they might lose control of the government, it became much more nasty. And Southerners, of course, have been dealing with this since 1820. They've been and crying about the fact that uh, they were blocked from the territories illegally, in their mind, illegally, because and they argued the Constitution was quite clear that the Congress could not legislate for the issue of slavery in the territories. Of course, there were Southerners that believed they could. I mean, uh, even old Republicans like Philip Pendleton Barber believed they could. So this is a highly complex issue. But Michael Holt's book is really good uh, another book on the coming of the war itself uh, is Avery Craven and uh, the coming of the Civil War, right? So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great book. Craven, again, is, is panned by the modern historical profession because, well, Avery Craven was of the blundering generation school. The war didn't have to happen. They could have solved the problem. But we had all these people that blundered into the war, the 1850s generation. Michael Holt is not necessarily a blundering generation school of thought, but he certainly thought that the war didn't have to happen, that there could have been some political compromise that would have solved the crisis. I mean, so you've got E. Merton Coulter's Confederate States of America. I just want to read about that. You've got Avery Craven's The Coming of the Civil War. You've got Michael Holt's Political Crisis of the 1850s. 
I'd also recommend just for the just a survey, if you had a textbook of the war, Ludwell Johnson's North Against South. Ludwell Johnson was a professor of history at the College of William and Mary, an excellent historian, and um, one who I think uh, does a nice job showing really both sides. I know he's often charged, well, he's more pro-Southern. He probably is. He shades more pro-Southern than not. But certainly uh, he is someone who is, uh, if you want to read about the campaigns, the military side of this, he does a very good job of that in a general sense. Charles Rowland, the American Iliad, another one that's good, uh, which does a very good job. Same thing. Charles Rowland is a you know, master historian from Kentucky. So those would be good books to read. Uh, a more recent book uh, is Tom Fleming, Thomas Fleming, who died not long ago. Not the Thomas Fleming at Chronicles, but the Thomas Fleming, the historian, who wrote A Disease of the Public in the Public Mind. This book was, I mean, people were really hot about this book because essentially what Tom Fleming did, and this was the last book he produced, and he probably did that on purpose because he knew what was going to happen when he wrote this book. People were going to lose their, they were going to absolutely lose their mind. Because for years, now, Tom Fleming was seen as kind of conservative, uh, but, you know, he was a popular historian in many ways. People liked Tom Fleming. He writes this book, and it's all about how the abolitionists ruined the United States. And he basically does it in a way that Thornwell was pointing out. As the abolitionist attacks became more pronounced, and he took that line from James Buchanan, who he, he's not hard on Buchanan in the book, which I found to be interesting. You know, He says, well, everybody says Buchanan is bad. Well, let's look at Buchanan more objectively. And he takes that line, and he says, Buchanan wasn't the first to do it. Others did it. Thomas Jefferson calls this a public mind. What is this disease? And it's this trolling, essentially, that was happening in the United States. When Northerners called Southerners, uh, essentially, when, when Charles Sumner, I'll use an example, Charles Sumner called Southerners the vomit of an uneasy civilization. Well, where do you go from there? When you have Northern theologians calling Southerners devils, well, where do you go from there? This is where we are in the public discourse in America today. There's no compromise on that. You can't say that someone is a devil and then simply, oh, well, we'll get along. You can't do that. You can't call someone vomit and think that they're going to be receptive to compromising with you. So Southerners reacted in kind and started calling the Northerners all kinds of horrible things. And so basically he said, look, that's the problem. It became a disease of the public mind. Public discourse was so bad that it caused this great big war, that there was no turning back from this. This is why people are saying today, well, are we going to have another civil war? Because we're looking at a situation in modern America where you have the Antifa crowd and these people in the, the SJWs who are gaining more and more traction and calling people that oppose them all kinds of horrible names. I mean, even if you're not. They're going to call you the names anyways. This is, what, this is why I point out the, the neoconservatives or the, or the Girondins, because they're just, they, they think that they're going to try to appease these people by you know, kind of compromising with them a little bit. There's no compromising with those people. So where do you go from there? You did have some abolitionists like Lysander Spooner, who certainly was willing to let the South go. I mean, this is what we wanted. We wanted the South out of the Union. Just let them go. If they're going to have a slaveholding republic, let it be out of the Union. Let them have their own slaveholding republic, and we'll have our free republic. Of course, 
That's not recognizing that Virginia and North Carolina and Maryland and Delaware and Kentucky and Tennessee, these states were still in the Union. So they would have still had a slaveholding republic. But regardless, there was some discussion about that. The last book that I would recommend, um, and well, I, I will say this about, uh, about Johnson too, he takes it up through Reconstruction. So you got a little bit of Reconstruction there. Uh, and, and another book about, Recon- not the last book, but another book about Reconstruction. Phil Lee's Southern Reconstruction is really good. It's a short treatise on Reconstruction, the impact of Reconstruction on the South. And, of course, you know, that led to a different kind of memory. It led to things like Who Owns America by the Agrarians or I'll Take My Stand. This, this memory of the war, of the desolation of the South, certainly led to a different type of viewpoint about what the war meant. But the last book I want to read, I, want, I would recommend you read, is Larry Tize's Pro-Slavery. And the reason I recommend you read that is because he takes pro-slavery ideology back into the 18th century. And he brings it up to 1840. And his, he has a, a statement in that particular book where he says, look, if you want to look for a cause of the war, it's not pro-slavery. You can't find it there because North and South were complicit in pro-slavery. In fact, you found just as many Northerners dedicated to pro-slavery ideology as Southerners. This was a national position of the United States. Not a Southern position, but a national position. So if that's the case, he's saying you got to look somewhere else for a cause of the war because Northerners and Southerners agreed on that particular issue for the most part. Now you had, of course, you had people in the North and the South. I mean, there were abolitionists in the South, very few by the 1840s, but you did have some. Uh, you had a situation where you had North and South unified on the belief that slavery was a beneficial system. And that was based on race. Northerners and Southerners were both racist. I mean, this is what... (laughs) I mean, again, much of what happens in Civil War, quote-unquote, historiography is a false dichotomy. Because if you say there's a lost cause, and of course, Drew Gilpin Faust gets into this. She picked an Eric Foner book, and I mean, just nonsense. You get into this, that there's a lost cause. That means there's a righteous cause, you see, but there really wasn't. This is why Malcolm X told Robert Penn Warren that Abraham Lincoln was the greatest disappointment and the greatest problem for black Americans. This is why Lerone Bennett wrote uh, his book on Lincoln. Uh, about uh, Lincoln's racism. I mean, uh, Tom DiLorenzo's new book on Abraham Lincoln, The Problem with Lincoln, is really good. I mean, because he, he gets into some of this stuff that, uh, of course, he left out of the real Lincoln. I mean, it, this is good stuff. But um, These are the books that I think if you read, you would find Coulter is a comprehensive view of the South. I mean, really it is. It is a majorly comprehensive view of the South. It takes the South in so many different ways and looks at the impact of the war and what the war was in a beautiful way. I mean, and he's now he's, 
he's going to shade pro-Southern. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he's from Georgia, so he's going to shade pro-Southern, but he does a really good job in a history of the South during the war. Gary Gallagher's The Confederate War does that too. I mean, those are good books. I would not recommend Drew Gilpin Faust's list. So I've given you several books here that I would recommend you read and uh, would help expand your knowledge of the war. That's my answer to the question. I get the mailbag like that. What do I read? Well, here you go. All right. So a little long on this, uh, but I wanted to do this. So I will see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show. See you then.